Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. Okay, just a, a one other point of review to talk about Marxism, because we're going we're to get more specifically into Marxism and specifically into race and into sexuality later today, okay? Now, what we have to understand about Marxism is, just as a, um, a recap, Marxism is a worldview where you see the world according to warring human tribes, and you see oppression. That's really what Marxism does. It trains you to see oppression, okay? So every time something is against you or something is hard, it trains you to see the oppression in that, because the goal of Marxists is to convince you that you are being oppressed and that you need to band together and take power. Does that make sense? That is the Marxist worldview. So when we get into critical race theory and stuff like that, what we're really trying to do is we're training people to see hardship as oppression. Okay? And what I'm going to do today is, number one, I'm going to try and clarify what the Bible says about all these things. That's what I tried to do a little bit of yesterday, but we're going to get more specific today. And number two, I'm going to give you lots of data and facts. Okay? Because I think it's important that as Christians, we don't just know something is true just because the Bible says it. I think that's a really terrible argument. Right? Like, how do you know this is true? Well, the Bible says it. That's great for other Christians, kind of, right? Um, but if you're going to actually convince anybody who's not a Christian, you're going to have to speak language that they understand, right? And so you're going to have to know data and facts, right, to make reasonable and logical arguments for these things, okay? All right. So before we jump into race, I want to do an introduction on two streams of the civil rights movement. So obviously, if you're familiar with the civil rights movement, this was in the 1960s, right? And we think of like Martin Luther King Jr. He was like the man in the civil rights movement, and rightly so, okay? Because he was he was a pastor, and really what Martin Luther King Jr. did was he helped lead a nonviolent movement for equal rights, okay? He fought for a colorblind society and for whiter unity between black and white America, okay? This is really important, okay? When you read Martin Luther King Jr., if you read his speeches or you listen to them, he's always talking about building a larger tent of brotherhood and unity between white and black. Okay, that's because he's a Christian. Right? That's because he was a pastor. He has a heart for unity, for reconciliation, for forgiveness, all of these kind of things. So I have a couple quotes here. Number one, quote, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Amazing quote, right? Really good, right? That's, that's pure Bible right there. Okay, number two. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Okay? He got that right from Jesus, right? Like, that's that's legit. Okay, Martin Luther King Jr. was legit. What I want to um, suggest to you guys is that when God does something to the enemy, he generally, one of his main tactics is to raise up a counterfeit movement. Okay? By the way, that's the whole idea of antichrist. Okay? If you've ever wondered what that term means, antichrist means counterfeit Christ. Okay? So it's something that appears or claims to be the true purpose of God, but it has major differences. It's actually a counterfeit. Does this make sense? Okay? The counterfeit movement of, because I believe the civil rights movement was a move from God. Okay? I believe the counterfeit movement was the black power movement. Okay? And this is represented by Malcolm X. He's kind of like one of the main leaders of that movement. Okay? Now, it was a pro-violence, if necessary, pro-resentment movement, okay? So the whole idea was by any means necessary. This was like a mantra, right? It was tribal, and it did not seek larger unity. So here's some quotes from Malcolm X. Number one, nobody can give you freedom. 
Nobody can give you equality or justice or anything. If you're a man, you take it. Okay? And quote number two, I believe that there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those that do the oppressing. I believe that there will be a clash between those who want freedom, justice, and equality for everyone and those who want to continue the systems of exploitation. Okay? Can you hear the Marxism in there? Can you hear the Marxist undertones? This language of oppression and exploitation and an inevitable clash, right? The impossibility of, of reconciliation, the impossibility of unity. Like these things are impossible from a Marxist perspective, right? You cannot reconcile. You have to take power. That's the only way you're going to get out from under the oppression. Okay? All right. So what I want to suggest to you is that these two streams, all right, God has a plan to bring unity, right? And by the way, this is God's agenda always. He wants to bring unity between peoples. He doesn't want war. He doesn't want division. He wants reconciliation, forgiveness, all these kinds of things. That's God's ultimate plan, okay? The enemy wants to stir up division, strife, and and and, and infighting, okay? These are all things that the enemy wants to do. So what I want to suggest to you is that in the same way, when we're talking about racial reconciliation today, all right, there's two streams here, okay? There is a stream that is pushing for tribal warfare and conflict, right? And then there's a stream that is pushing for for righteous unity, okay? And I want us to try and discern these things as we go into them, okay? So before we jump more specifically into race, we have to understand social justice. I talked a little bit about it yesterday. But most people, uh, and the reason why I say this is because, look, when I was in college, I went to a a fellowship called InterVarsity, all right? And man, they talked about social justice all the time, all right? I've heard that Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, has now made social justice one of their main platforms now at their, their, you know, um, fellowship, okay? Many other campus fellowships are embracing this language of social justice. And I just want to say straight up, this is not a Christian term. Okay, this is not a biblical term. This is a Marxist term, all right? And you have to understand the difference, okay? A lot of times, social justice will be presented as some form of Christian compassion or charity, all right? By the way, we all believe in Christian compassion and charity, okay? There's nothing wrong with helping the poor. There's nothing wrong with feeding the homeless. Those are wonderful and important things that we have to do. But when you put in this language of social justice, it's actually talking about something else. So this is this is really big. Like, let me put it to you this way. Black Lives Matter. This is this is marketing speak. Like, who doesn't believe that Black Lives Matter? Nobody, right? Everybody believes that Black Lives Matter. But the implication is that we're the ones who really believe that Black Lives Matter, and the people that don't support our movement don't believe that Black Lives Matter, right? That's the implication of the name, okay? And what you have to understand, number one, Black Lives Matter, and we'll get more to this in a little bit, is not against racism, okay? They're not against racism. They're against whiteness. Do you understand what the difference is there? Okay? They're not an anti-racist group, okay? They use that language that they're against racism, but when you actually pin down how they define racism, they don't define racism like Martin Luther King defined racism. They don't find racism like most of us define racism, okay? They define racism as supporting systems of exploitation, meaning that they define racism anything that argues against their agenda, right? Anything that argues against their agenda is racist, okay? And so you have to understand there's language games almost constantly when you're dealing with this stuff, all right? And what you have to do is get to the heart of how are people actually defining things. And I just want to say this. Look, if you are against an organization like Black Lives Matter, you're going to get called racist a lot. 
Okay, and this is what happens if you, you know, if you're called racist. Ninety percent of the time, what people will do is, is start trying to defend themselves. Right? I'm not a racist. Right? Like I have black friends. Right? I'm not a racist. Right? I went to a black church. Right? I get called racist all the time. I look. I went to a black church when I was in college. All right, predominantly black church. My spiritual mom is black. All right, I have lots of black friends. All right, I've literally never, you know, done anything racist by my definition of racism. Okay, none of that matters. None of that matters because you fit their definition of a racist because you are arguing against their agenda because they see their agenda as being anti-racist. Does this make sense? And I just want to say, don't fall into that trap where you're, because a lot of people spend all their time defending themselves, defending themselves, and it's not. This is this is actually part of the the strategy that they use. Okay, if you've ever studied Saul Zelinsky, and you guys familiar with that guy? Okay, um, he's uh he's kind of the 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 king of of leftist thought today. All right, in a lot of ways, they follow his playbook. One of his playbook is always ridicule your opponent. Okay. Always ridicule your opponent because what it does is it throws them off and it leaves them on the defensive where they're constantly defending themselves. Okay. And meanwhile, you're just attacking them. Right. One of his other rules is you accuse them of what you're doing. <laughs> right. Because now I'm going like, oh, no, I'm not doing what? Why would I do that? You're spending all your time defending yourselves. Meanwhile, they're doing the very thing that they're accusing you of doing. Okay. And they're constantly putting you on the defensive and constantly throwing you off. These are all Marxist tactics and they actually train. These are, these are trained in school and all these kinds of things. Okay. All right. I'm going to skip over Marxism here because we were talked about that yesterday. I'm going to skip over group justice versus individual justice because we talked about that yesterday, right? Social justice is group justice. It's not concerned with justice in the way that we define justice. It's concerned with leveling the playing field, right? And you guys ever seen that, um, you know, there's this there's this exercise that they train teachers to do in, in school where they say, hey, if you're, you know, if you're white, you know, we're going to do a race. And if you're white, come here and you start here, right? And all the black kids start over there, right? And if you're, you know, you know, if you're gay, then you start here, you know, and like, and then they say, all right, let's run, let's race, and all this kind of stuff. And obviously, the white male straight kids start like all like almost at the at the finish line, right? And they go, see, this is this is like society, right? This is like society. And the idea is that. It's society is inherently racist and prejudiced and exploitive. And so all of these kids who fit these, you know, these um, categories, they start with a huge head start, okay? And the whole idea is that the system is racist. It's not that the individual white person is racist. That's not what the big problem is for them, okay? It's that the system is racist. Does this make sense? This is all Marxist thought. It's looking at systems, okay? And we talked about intersectionality, so I'm not going to get there. Okay, so one thing, if you go to college today, the number one thing that you're going to learn is that systemic racism is a problem in America, okay? It doesn't matter. If you're a math major, you're going to learn about systemic racism, okay? It, this is the number one thing they're going to teach you because the belief in systemic racism is the core belief behind critical race theory, which is the racial version of Marxism, Okay. If you buy into that belief that systemic racism is a major problem in America, you have a foot in the door to Marxist belief, okay? And that's why this is so important. That's why I'm going to hit this so hard. And I will tell you, almost all of the young leaders, if you're like under 40 years old today, most Christian leaders believe systemic racism is a problem in America, okay? And that's because they've been told this ad nauseum in their university education in like the media, in the news, all this kind of stuff. It is everywhere. It's ubiquitous, okay? 
I'm going to I'm going to try and destroy that belief for you guys, okay? In a little bit here. Okay? Now, first of all, does everybody know I have a definition of systemic racism for anybody who's not familiar with it, but I just kind of described it, right? So I hope that that's enough. Um you know, a lot of the evidence, white families, this is from benandjerrys.com, by the way, okay? Ben and Jerry's is, you know, very progressive. All right, wealth gap. White families hold 90% of the national wealth, Latino families hold 2.3%, and black families hold 2.6%. For every $100 white families earn in income, black families earn just $57.30, okay? That's almost unbelievable, and it's a huge racial justice issue, okay? I want you to pay attention here. What they're doing is they're pointing to inequalities of outcome, and they're saying because there's inequalities of outcome, there must be injustice. Does that make sense? The inequality of outcome is injustice in their eyes, right? If if there was perfect justice, then what you'd have is you'd have, you know, everybody would be making about the same, racially speaking. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, education, white, while black children constitute 18% of preschoolers nationwide, they make up nearly 50% of suspensions. Okay. And again, they're seeing this, this is, Racial injustice. What's the implication here? The implication to these stats is, look at all these racist white teachers who are suspending black kids, something like that, okay? That's the implication, all right? And and so on, right? We know criminal justice, blacks make up 13% of the population. They represent a 40% of the prison population, okay? For many years, laws assigning assigned much harsher sentences for using and possessing crack, for example, compared to cocaine. We can talk about that example. That's a lie, all right? And... Um, and on and on. I'm sure you guys have heard some of these stats before, right? Okay. So here's my rebuttal, okay? And there's going to be several, but the last one is going to be the really important one. Okay? So number one, the idea that if you believe in systemic racism, okay, if you believe this narrative, I'm going to argue that it's actually incredibly damaging, especially if you're, if you're a minority. If you believe you're being oppressed, it's actually so damaging to you, okay? And that's because it teaches people to look for racism where none exists. Right? So, for example, people call me racist all the time. Okay, The truth is, I, I'm not racist. I actually have no problem like loving people of color, black people, Latino people, nothing. Right, But if you believe this system, you're looking for racism. You're, you become hypersensitive. You become very sensitive to racism. Okay, And what it causes, it causes this belief that everyone's out to get you or the system's set up against you, all this kind of stuff. Can I tell you, poverty is really about having a lack of belief in your own resourcefulness, a lot of it, okay? Now, I'm not saying that's the only factor, but I am saying this. Like, generally speaking, you have to believe that you can do well to do well. Like, that's an important component. You have to believe that you can get an A in the class to study hard, right? You have to believe that you can start a business and actually succeed in order to take the risk to, to do it, okay? The number one way that you can kill somebody's potential is to kill their belief in their potential, Okay, and that's exactly what this system does, right? What this narrative does, it kills belief in their potential, all right? If you grow up as a young black person, oftentimes they hear this, the cops are against you, the teachers are against you, like you'll never be able to succeed in this white system, all that kind of stuff, okay? And what you're doing is you're killing their their potential right at the root, okay? It's very, very dangerous in that sense, okay? It teaches people to interpret things as racist, even though like, look, the reality is the world is full of jerks, okay? Sometimes I'm a jerk on a bad day. All right, right? Like everybody has times where they act kind of like a jerk. But if you've been if you've been inculcated in the system, you interpret all those things as racism. Okay? Every time somebody's a jerk to you, you interpret it as racism, right? Or some type of bigotry or something like that. Okay? I, I mentioned it, it still is a poverty spirit. 
Okay, and here's the thing, unresolved hurt becomes unrighteous judgment. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a, in a little bit more in depth. But it's the idea that, look, this is, by the way, how division starts in communities anywhere, all right? If you get hurt, and all of us get hurt at times, all right? But if you get hurt, hurt is kind of like a poisonous cancer inside of you, all right? If it goes undealt with, then what happens is it, it forms into unrighteous judgment and into division, Okay, so for example, let's say somebody lies to me. Let's say, you know, Heidi lies to me, right? She says, oh yeah, I'm going to show up for, you know, practice today and no problem. And then she doesn't come, right? And I'm like, what the heck? She lied to me, right? And let's say hypothetically, let's say hypothetically, I get hurt by this, all right? Let's say I get hurt because she lied to me, all right? This is a bad example. There's better lies that would show that I would get hurt, okay? But let's say hypothetically, if I don't deal with that hurt, okay, then what'll happen over time is that that hurt will evolve into, it's not that Heidi lied to me, it's that she's a liar. Does that make sense? Okay, that's, that's what happens with unhealed hurts. It becomes unrighteous judgment, okay? And that's why you start to see, and now Heidi, what happens is I, I start to see her by her weakness, okay? I'm not seeing her by all of her strengths. Now, this one weakness that has hurt me has become the primary way that I view that person, okay? And this happens in everywhere. It happens in churches. It happens in communities everywhere, and it happens in society also. It's part of this whole thing. So, does that make sense? If you believe that there's a racist system, all these people are racist against you, you'll look for it, you'll be hurt by it, and you start to nurture this kind of hurt and resentment, okay? All right. Number two, inequality of outcome does not constitute inequality. Again, we're changing the definition of words here, okay? Guess what? Inequality of outcome, we already went over yesterday how the Lord said there's always going to be, there's always, the poor will be with you always, right? From God's perspective, it's not injustice to have people at different socioeconomic levels, different levels of power or authority. That's not injustice, right? Why? Because we actually have responsibility. We can choose to act in certain ways right? And, you know, we mentioned yesterday how that's considered very unfair in the Marxist system, okay? But look, the NBA, generally speaking, is not racist because of, there's no Asians, right? Are there any Asians anymore? Jeremy Lin, he was, he was, you know, he was there for a little bit, right? But for the most part, there's no Asians in the NBA. Why? Because they're short. That's it. Like, height is like, you can't teach height, right? Like, like, that's like the mantra in the NBA, right? And that's just the reality. Now, might there be some racism involved? Sure, of course, okay? But generally speaking, we can look at the NBA and go, hey, it's, it's not necessarily a racist organization, okay? But what you're going to find is that that standard is used all the time, right? If you don't have, you know, this many women. So, for example, a good one is, is women engineers. All these tech companies like Facebook and Google, they're all super progressive, right? But when they look at their workforce, it's something like 80% men, okay? And so what happens is you have a lot of people starting to argue, hey, this is, this, is, this is gender inequality. This is sexism, right? We are arguing against women um, or we are pick, selecting against women in, in hiring and stuff like that. And this is something that the Google executives and everything, they're very sensitive about, right? And so they started talking about this, putting out memos, stuff like that. And what happened is one of their employees was named James Damore. He worked at Google, all right? And what James Damore did was he wrote a memo and he put it on their public, their, their Google server, okay? And James Damore, basically what he did was he quoted the actual data from psychology, right? And the data from psychology says this, that women don't want to be engineers, right? That's what it says, right? It says that men tend to prefer 
jobs where they can sit in front of a screen and not talk to anybody, right? That tends to be more of a male, you know, inclination, right? And women tend to hate those kind of jobs, right? And so this, he's just quoting the, the, the psych data, right? There's been lots of studies on this type of thing. And he quotes that data and he says, you know, I think it has more to do with the preference that women generally don't want to be computer engineers, whereas men want to be more so, okay? And what happened was they fired James Damore, right? Because he was, in their eyes, saying something that was very sexist, right? What he was doing is providing justification for the inequality. Does that make sense? See, if you're providing justification for the inequality, it doesn't matter if, if your intention is sexist. It matters that you're coming against the agenda to bring equality. Does that make sense? So by their definition, he was sexist, and that's why he was canned. He was fired. Okay? Now, did James Moore do anything wrong? No! Right? If you if you listen to I heard some interviews, he's like the most like he he's like the typical computer engineer. You know, he's kind of like shy, right? He's kind of like you know, but he's knowledgeable. He knew the data, right? He had read the studies. Okay. But that's an example of this type of thing. Okay. All right. See, what we have to understand is there's this thing that Thomas Sowell calls discrimination one B. Okay. Now, if you're gonna understand, like have a deep understanding on any of this racial stuff, you've got to read Thomas Sowell, okay? He is the godfather of all this stuff, all right? And he is a an economist at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, all right? But if you listen to guys like Ben Shapiro and Larry Elder and all these guys that quote data, they're, almost all of them are quoting Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is the man on all this kind of stuff, okay? And what Thomas Sowell says is that all not all discrimination is racist, okay? By the way, if you go to Israel, Israel openly discriminates, okay? If you look Arab, they are going to check you out, all right? They're going to examine everything. Why? Because terrorism is real in Israel. Terrorism happens almost every day in Israel, all right? They don't have the luxury of, non, of not discriminating in this case, okay? But the point is, Israel is not saying, hey, we hate Arabs, right? Like there's a lot of Arabs in Israel, right? Which you're going to see. There's a lot of Arabs that live peacefully and they live great in Israel. It's not that the Israeli government hates Arabs. It's just that they understand that there's a higher, much higher correlation between an Arab who's going to commit ter terrorism, right? And a white person or a Jew who's going to commit terrorism. Make sense? Okay. So this is what Seoul calls discrimination 1B. And a good example is this. Say you're walking late at night you know, in, you know, downtown Colorado Springs, like, I, it doesn't seem that dangerous there, but if you've been to Oakland or something like that, like a dangerous city, all right, you're walking late at night downtown by yourself, on your side of the street is a, is a, is a group of like five, you know, 25-year-old African-Americans with hoodies and stuff like that. On the other side of the street is a group of, you know, Asian females, teenagers, right? The vast majority of us are going to take the extra step to just walk across the street and and pass by the group of Asian teenagers, right? Is that because we're racist? No, okay? It's not racism. It's because we understand that the chances of something bad happening are much higher on this side of the street than on that side of the street, okay? And the idea here is that because we lack individual data, because I don't know that group of guys. Look, that group of guys, they might be a bunch of Christian evangelists, right? Like, but I don't know, right? All I can see is their group demographic, okay? Because I don't have individual data on these people, I resort to group data, okay? And this is something that everyone does, okay? 
Everybody does this, okay? In studies, what they found, like there's a big stat that comes up whenever you're talking about systemic racism and stuff like that, they always talk about the employer hiring stat. And that's like, if you have like, if you have a black sounding name on your resume, they get rejected at a 10% higher rate than a white sounding name, right? And this is an example of systemic racism, okay? There's a problem with this though. In states where they're allowed to run background checks on the individual, right? What they find is that employers will hire people with black sounding names, but where they cannot run background checks because, you know, governments say like, oh, that's racist. You know, like they, if they have a criminal background, all this kind of stuff, we don't want you to see that. When employers can't see whether somebody has a criminal background, right? Well, then they resort to group data, right? They're more hesitant to hire black people because they're not allowed to look and see if they have a criminal background. Does this make sense? Okay. The idea here is that it's not that people are racist. It's that they play the odds and all of us do it. Okay. Everyone does this. And, and Soul's point is that this isn't because the person is inherently racist. Okay. All right. Now here's the real argument. Okay. Those are just side arguments that I just gave you. Here's the real argument. Okay. The truth is this, systemic racism is real, it's just very weak, okay? It's weak. So for example, the Jim Crow laws in the 1960s, if you're familiar with those, those were discriminatory against black people. Those are real, that's real systemic racism, okay? The thing is, systemic racism has very little power in truth when we actually look at the data. It's very weak, and I'll give you an example, okay? Today, the number one area of systemic racism is college admissions, okay? It is number one by far, Okay, the greatest example of systemic racism that still exists in our society today. I mentioned it a little bit yesterday, right? If you are an Asian and you get in Harvard, it's like you have to be in the top like 7% of applicants, something like that, okay? It's very difficult for an Asian to get in Harvard. If you're black, you can get into Harvard if, you, if you're within the top 60% of applicants. <laughs> as long as you're not in the bottom 40% of applicants, if you're black, you can get into Harvard, okay? That's how wide that gap is, okay? Now, if systemic racism, if the narrative of systemic racism is true, meaning the narrative is because there's these systems of oppression and exploitation, that's why black people can't succeed, okay? If that narrative was true, okay, then this should have a very large impact, right, on racial demographics, but it hasn't. It hasn't had any impact, right? Why? Harvard is swamped with so many highly qualified Asian applicants, even though they're just constantly discriminating for the past, like, 20 years, does this make sense? It doesn't actually make much difference. And this is what we see in the data over and over again, okay? The true culprit of why certain groups do well and certain groups do badly is culture. It's not systems of discrimination, okay? And we're going to talk about the power of culture. There are two cultural values that highly correlate with socioeconomic success, okay? And that is family and education, okay? In every people group throughout history where there's strong cultural values for family and education, those people groups do well in almost any historical context, okay? So I've just listed four examples here, okay? Number one, we have African immigrants from the West Indies, okay? So these are Americans, or excuse me, these are people from the West Indies, Jamaica, Honduras, places like that, and they immigrate to America they do something like 40% better economically than domestic blacks, okay? And that's because they have different cultural values, 
All right. Generally speaking, they do very well in American society. All right. So compared to U.S. born blacks, a significantly higher share of black immigrants are currently married. Right. 28% among U.S. born versus 48% among foreign born, meaning they have a higher value for family. Right. Their marriages stay together and last longer. Looked at another way, just one third of black immigrant adults have never been married, while half of U.S. born blacks had never been married. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about why that marriage stat is so important. It's actually hugely important. Okay. Okay. They earn 58% more than native black Americans, right? That's crazy. They have higher rates of high school graduation, college graduation, and they have lower rates of crime, okay? Now, this is a good example because they look exactly the same. You cannot tell if somebody is an immigrant from Jamaica based on just looking at them, right? And so this really blows a lot of that argument that people are looking, seeing somebody with black skin and then choosing to be racist towards them or something like that, okay? Example number two, Jews, okay? Jews have been persecuted in every historical context that they've been in, okay? Every historical context they've been in, they've been persecuted. They've had, they've had far more systemic racism than anything that we have in America, and yet they're continually one of the top you know, wage earners and income earners in almost any historical group that you put them in, okay? They're less than 1% they're less than 1% of the global population, but they receive 22% of the Nobel Prizes. Almost one in four Nobel Prizes go to Jews, right? They're less than 1% of the population, okay? If you go to any Ivy League university, half the faculty are Jewish, okay? Half the faculty are Jewish, all right? You don't understand, yes, you look at the entertainment companies, okay, all their executive suites, they're all Jewish, okay? You go to Wall Street, half their executives are Jewish. You go to any high-performing, you know, area, it's dominated by Jews, even though they're less than 1% of the people, okay? Now, that's why, by the way, there's so much jealousy towards the Jewish people, okay? And Marxism is a religion of jealousy in a lot of ways, okay? It is a religion of jealousy. And so it looks at those who are succeeding and it claims that they're oppressors and the reason they're succeeding is because they're oppressing everybody else, okay? When it's completely the other way around, all right? It's completely the other way around in the case of Jews and in many other cases, all right? Example number three, modern day Chinese, okay? Chinese people living in Indonesia and Malaysia are a very small percentage of the population and the, and the Malays are, and the Indonesians are pretty racist towards the Chinese people, okay? Chinese minority, which is just 5% of the Indonesian population, owns an estimated four-fifths of the capital in the country. Okay? Chinese people are rich. Okay? You go to Indonesia, all right, the richest people, they're all Chinese. Okay? That's, that's how it works. All right? And again, it's because of cultural values for family and for education. Okay? Those are what you see every single time with these successful groups in any historical, any national context. Okay, so what we have to understand is how do we get to a place where the culture of those who are not doing well in America, right? Can we look and see where the culture broke down? Okay, so to understand this, we have to understand the 1960s. All right, Lou talks all the time about the 1960s, right? Because he calls it the, like the Great Rebellion, and it was. It was a countercultural movement. Okay, so. Heather McDonald, all right, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, stuff like that, this is one of her theories, okay, that in the post-World War II era, if you studied World War II, what happened, in World War II, all of our enemies destroyed themselves, all right? Europe destroyed themselves, right? Japan got destroyed, right? Everybody got destroyed except for us, right? Except for the U.S., right? So what happened in the post-World War II era is that we became fabulously wealthy, 
All right. What we did was we sold Coke to every country in the world, right, after World War II. Right, Our products, our companies went buck wild. And so what happened was in the 1950s, if you look at a graph of our economic wealth and our GDP, it's like, whoosh, it's like going straight up. Okay, And what happened was for the first time ever, maybe in the history of the world, our young people, our adolescents, our youth, our teenagers had money. Okay, had like real money. They could buy stuff. And so what started to happen is that companies started to target teenagers in their advertising. For the first time in history, teenagers start to have real weight in society, right? Where their, their decisions matter. Companies are vying for their business, all this kind of stuff. And it creates a culture that's actively targeting teenagers and honoring what teenagers want. What you have is a countercultural movement. Okay, and the countercultural movement was this idea that the young people were like, do we really need to listen to those old people anymore, right? Do we really need to honor their traditions, their morality, any of their stuff? And there was a huge backlash against it. And you have all of this music coming out, like the Beatles, right? And like Bob Dylan, and they say the times are changing, right? Everything's changing. And what starts to happen is they start throwing off all of the traditional mores of American culture and society, and they start to do their own thing. So this is where in the 60s you see like the free love movement, right? It's like love and rock and roll and drugs and sex, and it's like, and it's okay. Why? Because now we have technology. We have contraceptives, right? We have the pill. We have all of these new technologies that will enable us to do these kinds of things, all right? So what happens in the 1960s and 70s? the divorce rate skyrockets in America across all people groups, okay? President Lyndon Johnson launches the war on poverty, which we'll get into in a little bit about why that was so terrible, okay? But what happens is the rate of, of single mothers starts to skyrocket in America, okay? Broken families starts to skyrocket in America, okay? Now, I'm gonna go to these stats, but I want you to look at this. This is a graph of babies conceived to single mothers. This is the number one stat, by the way. You, this is a stat that you should be familiar with. Look what happens in the 1960s and the 70s. All right? In 1950, the rate, if you were, if you were white in America, 95% of the time, your parents were married and committed if you were, if you were conceived. Okay? There was a 5% conception rate to single mothers in 1950 in America. Okay? And you'll look, um, in, among some other groups, it's higher, but it starts to skyrocket in the 1960s and 70s, all right? It starts to skyrocket in the 1960s and 70s, okay? And here's what you have to understand, okay? When we're looking at why is, why why do blacks earn so much less than whites or Native Americans, right? And we'll get into exactly which groups are struggling. The issue is fatherlessness. The issue is fatherlessness, okay? Look at these stats. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. That's 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. Do you understand? It's not an issue of systemic racism. It's an issue of fatherlessness. Okay, because what we see on this graph today, over 75% of black babies are conceived to single mothers. Okay, it's worse than it's ever been. Okay, and, it, and this is not just among the black community. Look at, look at these rates. Okay, so just to, to compare here, 
the 1950s today, the average age of the first marriage for women in 1960 was 20. <laughs> At 20, you'd be married, right? In 1960. Today, it's 27. It's gone way up, right? In 1960, 72% of all adults were married. Today, it's 50%. I think it's, I think it's lower. I, I did this, you know, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that, right? I think it's probably lower today. Asians have the highest marriage rate, right? Which is 58%. Whites, 53% marriage rate. Hispanics, 45%. Native Americans, 38%. And the blacks, 30%. Look at that marriage rate. See how it's going? It follows uh, median income almost perfectly. So look at this. Asians, Asians have the lowest rate of conception to single mothers, okay? It's around 20% or lower, okay? They have the highest median income at 81,000. By the way, the whole idea of white privilege, right? It, it falls apart in the case of Asians, right? This is, this is why they keep getting defined as Asians, right? Or as white, right? Asians are now white in like elite culture in America today, right? The, Asians are somehow benefiting from white privilege, and white societal discrimination, right? Which makes no sense at all, right? Because Asians, generally speaking, don't come, <laughs> Asians don't come from rich backgrounds for the most part, okay? You look at most Asians, they come from poor backgrounds. No, what they have, what Asians have is they have a strong, they have strong family values and they have strong values for education, okay? Those are the two, those are the two cultural values that always result in success, all right? Now look at this. Next are whites. They have a median income of $68,000. Then Hispanics at $50,000. Then American Indians at $41,000. And then blacks at $40,000. So what you see is that the median income tracks that single mother rate perfectly. The more single mothers you have, the more poverty you're going to have. That's what it really comes down to. And all the stats track that. Okay. Now what you see is that there's a second factor all right, and that factor is welfare. All right, welfare. I mentioned Linda Johnson. He launched the war on poverty. This is the idea that we're going to eradicate poverty. By the way, by the time you know Linda Johnson, when he launched the war on poverty and the rate of poverty today, it's exactly the same. All right, it hasn't changed a bit, even though trillions of dollars have been spent by the U.S. government to quote unquote combat poverty. Okay, all right. What happened though is the welfare state incentivized the destruction of the nuclear family. All right, in 1960, before the expansion of the welfare state, 22% of black children were raised with only one parent. Okay, by 1985, it was 67% of black children. Okay, the welfare state has led to remarkably similar trends among the white underclass in England over the same period. So, what we understand in America, we think about it in terms of race. In England, they have the same problems of they have underclasses that have the same cycles of 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 poverty and crime, but they're white. They're different white underclasses. Does that make sense? And what you have in in, in common is you have a welfare state and you have an ideology of oppression. Okay, that's the issue. Okay, there are other welfare states where you don't see these types of underclasses of you know poverty through generations, stuff like that. But what's missing from those is an ideology of oppression. In England, they have that same kind of ideology where the underclasses believe they're being oppressed by the elites and by the rich people in society. All right, what it does is it produces cycles of poverty throughout the years. Okay, and here's what we have to understand: like when we're talking about black poverty, it's we're really talking about black single poverty. Okay. The reality is that married black people have never had a greater poverty rate than 10%. Okay. Generally speaking, if you're black and you're married, you're doing fine. Okay. But if you're black and you're single, you tend to be poor. And this is not hard to understand. Okay. It is super hard to raise a child with two parents. Okay. It's super difficult. Okay. It is unimaginably difficult to do it with one parent. Okay. It is incredibly hard to do. All right. So uh, hear my heart here. Okay. My heart is not to be throwing stones at the black community. I love the black community. Okay. 
But what they're having to deal with because of these issues of marriage and divorce and not marrying and getting pregnant, it creates an impossible situation where you get locked into poverty and cycles of poverty and crime. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, according to the Brookings Institute, Brookings Institute is a more liberal think tank, okay? But they basically say this, that if you do three things, you will not be poor in America, all right? If you graduate from high school, if you don't have babies before marriage, and if you get a full-time job, if you do those three things, you won't be poor. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic situation. It doesn't matter your race. Nothing matters, right? It's those three issues, okay? But the problem is in the Native American community, in the black community, very few, relatively few people are doing those three things. Okay, and look, I I spent a good amount of time at the Indian Reservation. I've gone on three mission trips to the Navajo Nation over there. Right, I'll tell you, it's heartbreaking. Okay, it is heartbreaking. The cycles of poverty and abuse, sexual abuse, drug addiction, alcoholism, like suicide. It, it it's it's not because of white people. All right, <laughs> it's not because of white people. It's because of demonic oppression. All right. That's what we're dealing with, right? As Christians, we understand we're dealing with demonic oppression. And guess the best way to get people demons? The best way to give people demons is to make them bitter. Okay? That is, that's the formula. If you want to give somebody demons, you try and make them as bitter as possible. Okay? And that's what this ideology does. It nurtures resentment and bitterness. Okay? Now, what you're going to hear, if you go to university, they're going to say, yeah, well, we know that, you know, black marriage rates are lower. We know there's correlation between these things. But you have to understand, this is all a legacy of slavery. Right? It's because during slavery, black families were broken apart, and, and that legacy has never been healed. Okay, let me pause right there. And, do you have a question? So there's this argument that I hear all the time when I'm trying to share with people about this. It's like, yeah, but it's because of slavery. It's because families were broken apart in slavery, and they never recovered. Right, and we're still dealing with the remnants of that. Okay, this is Jason Riley writing in the Wall Street Journal. Jason Riley is a black columnist. Okay, and he says this: between 1890 and 1940, for example, black marriage rates in the U.S. were higher than white marriage rates. In the 1940s and 50s, black labor participation rates exceeded those of whites. Black incomes grew much faster than white incomes, and the black poverty rate fell by 40 percentage points. Between 1940 and 1970, that is, during Jim Crow and prior to the era of affirmative action, the number of blacks in middle-class professions quadrupled. In other words, racial gaps were narrowing, steady progress was being made. Blacks today hear plenty about plenty about what they can't achieve due to the legacy of slavery and not enough about what they did in fact achieve notwithstanding hundreds of years in bondage followed by decades of legal segregation in the post 60s era these positive trends would slow stall or in some cases even reverse course the homicide rate for black men fell by 18 percent in the 1940s and by another 22 percent in the 1950s but in the 1960s all those gains would vanish as the homicide rate for black males rose by nearly 90 percent Okay, what he's pointing out here is that in the Jim Crow era, when we have clear systemic racism, okay, against black people in America, they're, they, they're doing really well. Okay, they're doing really well in the post-slavery era. But what happens is you hit the 1960s and things start to collapse for the black community in America. Okay, and they've gotten progressively worse. All right, so this whole idea that it's systemic racism, it's such a flawed argument. How can things be worse today? Is systemic racism worse today than it was in the 1960s? Of course not, right? But that would have to be the argument if the, system, if the, if the narrative of systemic racism was true. It would have to be because systemic racism is so much worse today. Does this make sense? Okay, and I mentioned this, but this whole paradigm is thoroughly biblical, okay? This idea that the Bible repeatedly teaches that righteousness brings blessings and sin brings curses, 
right? This is all over the Bible, right? If you, are faith, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, okay? This, this idea that righteousness brings blessings and, sins bring, and sin brings curses is like, you can't read the Bible without getting that from the Bible, right? That's like pretty essential to the Bible. But I tell you, man, if if I come out and I say, hey, the reason why black Americans are struggling is because of the sin in the black community. You know what happened to me? I'll, I'll get death threats, <laughs> all right? I'll get people cussing me out, Christians, right? I'll get Christians rebuking me all over the place, right? We're talking about one of the most, you know, fundamental biblical lessons and the church has chosen to silence its voice on this because we're afraid of offending people yes yeah okay let me let me break this down like i tell my college kids when i was pastoring college kids i would tell them hey you know if you get your girlfriend pregnant congratulations you have found the one <laughs> right? i tell them congratulations you found the one right it's time to get married right? You got to get married. I would tell them that. Like, hey, sometimes that happens, but you got to get married now, right? If you don't get married, don't come back to my church, all right? If you don't get married, you're out of here, all right? Why? Because now you're putting your girlfriend in the situation where she has to consider raising the child on her own or getting an abortion. That's why many women choose to get abortions in those situations, right? And what I'm getting at here is I put that expectation on them because that's how serious it is for me, Okay. Like, look, I understand young people, we're living in a very sexualized culture. A lot of people are going to have sex, but you better take responsibility. You better take responsibility, okay? That message is not being preached in black communities, okay? Now, I'm not saying it isn't being preached in some black communities, right? But I'm saying that the issue is that people are sleeping together, getting pregnant, and then they're not getting married. They're not committing to it, and they're not sticking with it. And I want to say, look, there's a lot of confounding factors to that, okay? I, wanna, I don't want to, like, say it's easy, right? Marriage is hard, and it is doubly hard when you are married to somebody that you thought you were just going to sleep with and move on from. That's hard, okay? I'm not saying it's hard, but this is, this is why the Bible is so strict about sex, okay? We're going to talk about this in the next session. We're talking about sexuality. The reason why God is strict about sex is because of children, all right? Children need parents that are committed to them and to one another to grow up in a healthy manner. If they don't have that, they grow up with all sorts of brokenness. It's very, very difficult, right? And that's, and that's the heart of this. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, I want to say one more thing before I get into why these things aren't taught. Okay? I want to say the true history of slavery. I haven't updated this, this document. Today, look, white people are demonized as being like the progenitors of slavery, right? They created slavery. They implemented slavery. White supremacy is, is you know, the greatest evil in history and all this kind of stuff. All of this is complete garbage, okay? All of this is complete garbage, all right? Slavery is an ancient universal institution. It has been a part of every major civilization throughout history until the abolition movement of the 19th century, okay? It is Everywhere, 95% of slaves from Africa did not go to Europe or America, okay? 95% of the slaves in the African slave trade went to the Muslim empire, the, the, the Ottoman empire, right? The Islamic lands, and they went to South America, all right? 
They went all over the place. The true story of slavery is this, that what happened is out of the Second Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening is a revival in America, right, in the 1850s, 1840s, something like that. What happens is God starts to speak to the church in the West, specifically in Britain and in America, about how slavery is evil and it's wrong. And this is a kind of a revolutionary idea for the time, okay? This kind of a revolutionary idea for the time. But what happens is, Many leaders of the Second Great Awakening start getting so convicted about this, right? They start saying, if you're a slaveholder, you are not allowed to come into our churches. You will not take communion with us. You will not be baptized. They start to raise these lines and say, hey, no, we believe God wants to end slavery in our time, right? It, the abolition movement starts to catch fire because of the Second Great Awakening, okay? And what happens is that movement, obviously, Britain uh, abolishes their slave trade. All right. In America, we obviously have to fight a civil war over it. Okay, We fight a civil war of it, but after that happens, what happens is Britain really deserves most of the credit. Britain gets real conviction that this is wrong. What they do, they start to blockade the west coast of Africa. Right? I mean, they move ships to intercept any suspected slave ship. Okay, They start to board slave, suspected slave ships and take the slaves and set them free. And, th and they start to take these slaving vessels. They go to Brazil, where a huge slave trade was. Right, They sink all those ships in the Brazilian Navy. Right, They send a letter to the Ottoman Sultan, and they say that we are forcibly ending your slave trade. Right, The Ottoman Sultan writes back and says, Basically, he says, are you guys crazy, <laughs> right? Like, we've had slaves forever. What is your guys' problem, right? The real story of slavery is how Britain and then America and then some of the Western European nations take it upon themselves to end the institution of slavery all over the world. That's the real history of slavery. And what we have today is a narrative that is almost 180 degrees the opposite. Right? It's like the complete opposite, that white people came up with slavery. You know how black slaves came to be, come into the hands of white slave traders? Because they, they had inter, inter, you know, the warfare among African tribes, and when you would beat a tribe, you'd take its, you know, you'd take its warriors captive, and you would sell them to Western slave traders. Right? The idea that white people, it, like they're responsible for slavery is so ridiculous. Okay, it's so ridiculous, but this is the narrative that has become like doctrine today in American society. And it's all based off of a lie. This makes sense? And it's this it's it's a narrative that supports an agenda, okay? And now here's the thing, why aren't these things taught? Why am I some random guy talking to you in this random little school teaching you about these things? Right? Like, this is not a poli sci class. You know, you're not at a university. Why isn't this being taught by any of the universities, the media, any of this stuff? Well, I'll tell you because the, because the Marxists took over all those industries. All right? 96% of Harvard faculty donations were to Democratic candidates. You know how insane that is? Okay? And that, it's not like it's just Harvard, that's at almost every single Ivy League university. Okay? I heard, I heard, uh, an interview with a professor from Harvard. He taught history at Harvard for something like 20 years, for a long time. And what happened, he said, is once a progressive got the chair of the Harvard History Department, he started getting rid of all the non-progressives and hiring only progressives. And so it used to be, back in the 1980s, that Harvard had a very diverse history department. I mean, there was a lot of people that saw history in a different way. But what happened is all those people got kicked out Okay, all those people that didn't see it along Marxist lines got kicked out of the universities, and now he can't find a job. This guy taught at Harvard for like over twenty years. He said no top tier university will hire me anymore. All right, 
It's a purge, and it's been going on for decades at this point. Over 96% of the money donated by people identified in federal campaign finance filings as journalists, reporters, news editors, or television news anchors went to Hillary Clinton, right? 96%. These are communist numbers, right? Like, Putin got 96% of the vote, right? Like, these are communist numbers, but that's what we have operating in these institutions. Of the more than $4 million in federal donations made by the top Hollywood executives and entertainers, this is in 2018, 99.7% went to Democrats or Democratic-leaning political action committees or organizations. That's according to a Hollywood Reporter data review of the Federal Elections Commission's records. This is insane, right? It's, it's, it's a brainwashing that's going on, and it's been happening, okay? And you have to understand, this is... Marxist infiltration tactics, okay? The number one way that the KGB, this that's the, you know, the Soviet equivalent of the CIA. The number one way that they train their operatives to work was to take over the educational institutions of whatever country they were starting to try, they were they were trying to start a communist revolt in. Okay? I didn't get a chance to to get into this yesterday. I would love to take you through, you know, some of these um some of these guys that talk about this, all right? But yes, this is communist doctrine. You take over their education facilities, and what you do is you indoctrinate their young people, right? And it sets in course an irreversible momentum towards Marxism, right? This is standard Soviet training, okay? And it's been happening in America. And people are oblivious to this, right? And here I am, like, and I'm like, you know, I'm like that crazy person on Facebook, be like, hey, America is bringing brainwash. And people are like, dude, you're some kind of conspiracy theorist, huh? I'm like, I guess if you see it that way, but I don't know why you're not worried that 96% of Harvard faculty donations went to Democrats. That doesn't seem strange to you. Like that doesn't seem like, hey, it shouldn't be like that. We should have multiple points of view in a university, right? It doesn't seem strange to you that they've purged the universities and the newspapers and Hollywood of all of these things. This is why I tell, you know, like I've had people come to me and say like, hey, Pastor Dennis, you know, I, I want to go in Hollywood. I want to be a light in Hollywood, right, for Jesus. I'm like, you have no idea how Hollywood works, right? If you're a conservative, you cannot get promoted in Hollywood, right? It's extremely difficult, right? You cannot reach positions of influence in any of these industries, right, unless you hide everything that you believe, right, and you refuse to openly discuss it. Then you have a chance. This makes sense. It's a purge, okay? And this is exactly how these things work, all right? This is how, how many countries in the 20th century became communist, all right? We are undergoing a Marxist revolution in America today using 21st century technology, all right? There's a reason why you're not going to see, you're going to see, well, I'll put it this way, you know, I, I saw a guy named Alex Jones. You guys know who Alex Jones is? He used to have the fifth most popular YouTube channel. Right, I didn't know Alex Jones at all until he got banned by YouTube, and then in the course of two weeks, he got banned by Apple, by Spotify, by every major tech company. They all collaborated to banish this guy, and I was like, "What is happening? Like that's crazy to me!" Right? It's happening on the open. That thing used to, that kind of thing used to be rare. Now it happens all the time. Right? When we were going, we were doing all this vaccine stuff. Right, you had Robert Malone. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this guy. This guy is the inventor of the mRNA vaccine technology, right? This guy's literally like the most qualified person in the world to talk about this stuff. He got banned from Twitter, right, for inducing vaccine hesitancy, 
<laughs> right? Like, it's insane because he's trying to warn people. He's like, because he thoroughly understands the technology. And he's saying, hey, there are dangers to this technology that we are overlooking and not talking about. So he tries to talk about them. He gets silenced and banned from Twitter for spreading vaccine hesitancy. Does it make sense? Like, this is, and why is that? Because the tech companies are run by Marxists, okay? You, it's not that they think of themselves as Marxists. That's the crazy thing. They don't think of themselves as Marxists. They think of themselves as progressives, right? But progressive is code word for Marxist because the underlying ideology to all of this stuff is Marxism. Does this make sense? Okay. I don't know. I don't know what he was saying that got him banned because I, I heard him on Joe Rogan. And that was the first time. That was the first time I heard him. I hadn't heard him before, but you know, Joe Rogan was actually friends with him. And you know, I had always heard about Alex Jones as some kind of conspiracy, crazy loony guy, right? And um, and I listened to him, and he made a lot of sense on that podcast. But the thing is, he's saying a lot of stuff about a lot of things, you know. So I don't know what out of all the things got him banned. I will say, the 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 reason why the tech companies said that they banned him was because he said that Sandy Hook, the shooting, was a cons- was a government conspiracy. Okay, that's why they said they banned him. Okay, in no in the interview with Joe Rogan, um, he talks about that about how their rationale for banning him was that he said that Sandy Hook was a government conspiracy, but he said that he has publicly renounced that position years ago. Right, he said openly, "I do not think that any longer." When it first happened, I thought that, but after I looked into it and I found the data, I do not think that I've recanted that. I did that years ago publicly several times. Right, but that's the rationale that all these tech companies use to ban him. So I don't know what of all that he said made him banned. Right, but he's been talking about long for a long time about how we are in an information war. Right, what's happening is that the globalists—that's the the language he uses—but it's it's Marxist globalists, right? That they've seized right the institutions of communication and they're trying to cut off all dissenting opinion. Right, he's been saying that for years, and. They banned him from everything. You know what I mean? Like, that's a pretty good argument that he's right, right? So, uh, but this is what's happening nationwide, right? That's that's why I say, look, when we're talking about Marxism, I don't think Marxism is a side issue. A lot of people think it's a side issue. They don't want to get political and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, do you understand? We're we're living right now through through a Marxist takeover of the nation, and you don't want to talk about it. Like, you're not interested. It's not a big deal to you. And I'm like, it really should be a big deal. It's literally the most devastating ideology of the 20th century. Okay, it literally, it literally devastated so many nations all around the world. Okay, and I was a history major in college. I studied all that stuff, and I'm like, you do not want that same thing happening here. Okay, but just being real, we are in a tailspin right now. Okay, the Marxists have already seized all of these cultural institutions. Okay, so the only the only way that you know I can see that we reverse this is if we go all out. Fighting, and I and I don't necessarily mean physical violence at this point, but I'm just saying. Look, I I tell I tell parents, why do you send your kids to college? Like why? Because it's it's just it's just you know common sense. You send your kids to college. I'm like, don't send your kids to college. Do you know what the chances of them being in, becoming a Marxist when they graduate is? It's very high, right? If you send them to college, you better make sure that they're like a math major <laughs> or like a computer science major and that they have been thoroughly trained to resist Marxist thought. Because I'm just telling you, if they haven't been, they're going to come out Marxist, all right? If they're a sociology major, ethnic studies major, you understand, like countries like, I think Ukraine, I think countries like Ukraine, they banned all those majors, 
right? You're literally not allowed to have those at the universities because they know what it is. All of those fields of studies are Marxist. Those are all Marxist fields of study, okay? So they know, they're like, we know what this is. We were a formerly Marxist nation, right? And we are, do not allow them in our universities, right? But here, half the students are graduating with these types of degrees, right? And it's not only that, but if you're a history major like me, right, you're still going to get a Marxist perspective of history now, right? You're going to get a Marxist education in political science. You're going to get a Marxist education of almost everything. It's a mass brainwashing. And so I'm, I'm saying like, you got to wake up, all right? I just tell parents this all the time. You got to wake up. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't send my kids to Harvard unless it was like, uh, unless they're going to be engineering majors, right? And I train them really well on how to avoid all this kind of stuff because this is a real mind virus. It's a real plague. And look, it's not just in those institutions. It's making huge headway into the church. All right. I don't know if you guys saw, you know, what happened. Look, I got fired, you know, from my church because I said, I don't believe white privilege is a thing. Right. That got me fired. I had over 50 people call in to try and get me fired. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's cancel culture. Okay. And um, I wouldn't have been so worried about that because I'm like, nah, okay, that kind of stuff happens. But when I started interviewing at other churches, I said, hey, if I'm going to work for your church, I'm going to have to talk about abortion. I'm going to have to talk about homosexuality. I'm going to have to talk about this stuff. And at every church I interviewed, it was that was a deal breaker. They were like, we don't want our pastors to be political. I was like, you guys are insane. Right? I was literally reasoning with senior pastors whose own children were Marxists at this point. And I was like, if you don't educate them on this stuff, the universities will. If you don't teach them about biblical morality, biblical sexuality, right? If you don't teach them about these things, the universities are going to educate them. And I, I was shocked at how pervasive this had become in California churches, okay? And, um, and it's spreading everywhere, okay? So that's, that's my heart in trying to help you guys understand these things. Now, you know, to finish up this talk, how are we on time? Okay, good. To finish up this talk... Um, What's the answer then? How do we fix, how do we do real racial reconciliation? The principles have never changed, okay, in 2,000 years. In 2,000 years, it's been exactly the same, all right? And that is, we practice gratitude, all right? Gratitude and thankfulness is like Marxist poison, all right? Because what you do is you train people not to see all the curses and the ways they might be oppressed. You train them to see all the blessings in their life right? And that spirit of gratitude and thankfulness, it diffuses Marxism, right? It kills that jealousy. It kills that resentment, right? We train people to be thankful, all right? Here's the truth. Black, black people, American black people are the richest black people on the planet, right? When we talk about how there's so much, you know, you know, so much poverty in America, no, there's not. No, there's not. The poorest people in America are fabulously wealthy by global standards, right? Like what we've done is we've created a culture where we are literally the most blessed, richest, most healthy, safest people in the history of the world, but there's a widespread belief that we're oppressed. Right? It is a, it is a certain kind of insanity, but it's, it's because of that narrative. It's so strong, right? Do you understand, do you know that in the past 50 years, 80% of extreme global, global poverty has been eliminated? In the past, this is the past 50 years. We are actually in the period of the greatest economic growth in the history of the world. All right? We literally are in the greatest period of, of world financial blessing ever. And at the same time, 
this I, this idea that we are the most oppressed people in history has become so popular, right? It is crazy, right? Number two, other than thankfulness, we must see a righteous culture, okay? Look, sin brings curses, righteousness brings blessings. We cannot have a real conversation about black criminality and poverty without a conversation about black sin, okay? Now, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on, on black people, but a lot of times the, the conversation does revolve around the black community, okay? But if you bring up sin, you get persecuted, all right? And this is why I say, I said yesterday, you know, what's the answer, you know, to, you know, what should we, do? how do we sow in the season, right? If we can't reap, if we're, it's not the time for evangelism and it's time for sowing. And I said, hey, well, it means you got to pray, right? We have to train the body of Christ to pray and intercede for the move of God. And we have to stand for controversial truths, right? Now, the reason why, the whole idea of controversy is that controversy means we are fighting about it. Right? These are truths that our people are fighting over. Okay? Now here's what I'm here's what I'm, I am not saying that you should just be a jerk, right, and make people mad at you online and all this kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. We should not be, be needlessly controversial, but we should understand that the reason why certain things are controversial are because it's a battleground for truth. Does that make sense? Wars are being fought over these truths. Now, they start off as ideological wars. That's the, that's what we're in right now, okay? If you say, I'm never going to talk into controversy, well, I have good news for you. You'll never get persecuted, okay? You'll never get persecuted if you never talk into controversy. And that's the that's the the slant that most churches have taken. They don't want, you know, they don't want to get persecuted. They don't want to cause trouble. They want to be loving. They want to be inclusive, all this kind of stuff. But I'm going to say, then, then Jesus never would have gotten crucified, okay? Paul never would have been stoned right? Nobody's going to come after you if you refuse to say controversial truths, but that's the whole point. The whole point is that we are salt and light, so we are honor-bound. We have the responsibility to speak truth when people don't want to hear it, okay? Now, I am not saying that you need to annoy your neighbor, right, over and over with something they don't want to hear, but I am saying you cannot make a decision to be silent on these issues, all right? You cannot make that decision and follow Christ, okay? Now, here's also what I'm saying. You cannot speak on something that you don't have real conviction on, all right? So I'm not saying that you should be like, homosexuality is a sin, and you don't really feel that strongly about it. It's not that big of a deal to you, but you're just yelling it out annoyingly. No, like, you have to get conviction, okay? On the truths that you get conviction on, then you speak out, okay? And this is what God told Ezekiel. He said, son of man, I've set you as a watchman on the walls. If you see danger approaching and you do not warn the people, then their blood shall be on your head, all right? But if you see danger approaching and you warn the people, then I will not hold you responsible for them, okay? That's the job of a watchman. When we're talking about being prayer, prayer is often linked with this idea of staying alert and being on watch. Jesus tells his disciples, right, would you keep watch with me? What does that mean? It means that in the place of prayer, you're communing with God. You're getting revelation from the Lord about what's serious to him, okay? And you're alert, you're awake to the dangers in the spiritual realm and what's going on. And now it's your responsibility to warn the people, right? This is why, like, Lou was, like, you know, the number one enemy of the gay community in, like, what was that, 2015 or something crazy like that, right? He literally got the the number one enemy of the gay community award. If you know Lou Engel, he does not hate gay people. Okay, he prays for gay people all the time. But what is he doing? He's speaking out in such a way, right? Because the Lord is burdening his heart and he has to warn the people. 
Brothers and sisters, that's our job as intercessors. To be an intercessor is to be a watchman on the walls, right? It's to be diligent in the place of prayer so you have a spirit of urgency. That's The opposite of that is falling into spiritual slumber, right? When we're not diligent in prayer, we fall into spiritual slumber where we don't know what the heck's going on in the spiritual realm. We don't have any sense of alarm, any sense of urgency in our hearts, and we cannot warn the people, right? This is why the scripture says over and over again, keep watch, Keep watch, right? Speaking specifically to maintain diligence in prayer. But the second aspect of the responsibility is that we have to warn the people, right? When we see judgment coming, we must warn the people. And I can I tell you, this is judgment, okay? Marxism is a form of humanism. It is an arrogance. It is an arrogance that we do not give thanks to God for the blessings that we have, right? We're not grateful. We're literally the most blessed people in the history of the world, And we're not grateful and thankful. Instead, what we've chosen to do is look at all the things that could be better and say, how come it's not like this? And we complain. We're complaining people now, right? Marxism is an ideology of complaint, of grievance, of resentment, right? And it's so strong in our culture. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say this from my heart. We need leaders that will stand up and rebuke these people. Okay, I'm not saying you have to hate them. You shouldn't hate them. You should love them. But in love, we should say, hey, America, repent of your arrogance, okay? You're suffering for the sake of your own sin. When we get into sexuality, it's gonna be the same exact thing. We are suffering the effects of our own sinfulness, all right? And we need leaders that have the conviction to be able to stand up and be honest about this instead of bowing to public pressure where we just refuse, right, to say anything that could get people mad at us. Okay, Fiend, all done. Questions before we break? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the the place that I recommend most Christians start with is Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines. Okay. Um, the content staff was reading it last semester. It's a good one. It targets especially the police narratives, right? That there's white cops shooting black black people all the time. Okay. It's called Fault Lines. Okay. But it's going to give you strong biblical foundation for understanding, you know, a lot of this narrative. Okay, fault lines by Vodi Bauckham. Um, now, it, it's a he. It's V O D D I E Vodi, and Bauckham is B A U C H A U M. I think. Okay, um, that's a good place to start. Honestly, most of the political guys on the right are saying all this stuff. Okay, guys like Ben Shapiro, guys like um, you know the Turning Point guys like Candace Owens, and I forget that dude's name. Larry Elder. Larry Elder is one of the most articulate on all this stuff. He knows these stats inside and out. All right. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, if you want to get into the actual data, like really go deep academically, you got to do Thomas Sowell. Right. He's, he's the godfather of all this, all these statistics and, and all this data. Okay. Um, there's a lot more people starting to write on this stuff. Thank God. Okay. James Lindsay is another voice that has been speaking out. He's not a Christian. All right, but he is, um, he wrote a book called Cynical Theories. Um, he, I think he was one of the guys, I don't know if you guys know about this, they, they, they published a bunch of papers in academic journals, and what they did was they took, like, like one of their papers was they took Mein Kampf, right, Hitler's book, right, and they, they turned it all into progressive language, right, like, they started using progressive academic language to say what Hitler was saying, right, <laughs> like, they did all these hoax papers, right, and like half of them 
got like approved in peer review journals and stuff like that, right? And their whole point, their whole point for passing all these papers was to say like all of these fields of study, like ethnic studies, gender studies, all these, these are all fake, right? These have no academic merit. They're literally just the more Marxism you parrot, that's how you get promoted in all of these, you know, things. And um, so there's a lot of stuff out there. It's just Christians don't really know about it. Christians have not taken the time to, to get educated on this because they haven't seen it as being spiritually relevant, all right? But my whole point of doing the whole biblical worldview versus Marxist worldview is to show how relevant this is. Okay, this is all extremely relevant. So yes, honestly, if you just start digging, you start looking for stuff, you're going to find lots of stuff. Okay, all those guys that I mentioned are a great source of information. And there's there's books coming out all the time now because it doesn't. Neil Shenvey, if you're familiar with him, he's got some lectures on YouTube against critical race theory um, that are are pretty good. Yes. Um, yes. Yes, podcast called The Righteous Remnant. I've, it's been neglected in recent times, but... I'm, I'm gonna start doing some more episodes. <laughs> and if if you look at my podcast, all right, I have like I have like one star out of five because I have like two thousand negative reviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the righteous remnant podcast. No sin is the cause of criminality and poverty. Okay, systemic racism is is the idea that you know there's racist systems. Right, like affirmative action. Affirmative action is the clearest example, right? Affirmative action is like, you know, if you're Asian, we're not gonna we're only gonna allow ten percent of Asians into Harvard or something like that. Okay. And um that's clearly racist, right? It's clearly racial racially discriminatory, but it's it the argument is that it's racially discriminatory in the right way, right? It's punishing Asians and white people and it's helping out black and Latinos and stuff like that. So that's an example of systemic racism. My essential argument is that systemic racism is weak. It doesn't hardly do anything. It's not like it's not like Asians are suffering because of affirmative action, right? It, few Asians are. Asians in general are not suffering because systemic racism is not weak, is not powerful. Okay, it's culture. Culture is the thing that determines how well um, groups do socioeconomically. Absolutely, hundred times. And what are the two cultural elements that are the most important? Education, family. Yep. Yeah. Because what is it's? Uh, I don't. Did I talk about for, unforgiveness? Yeah, unforgiveness is the cancer. I didn't mention that one. Yeah, forgiveness. All right, so if you're if you're if you're black, when somebody tells you white people are oppressing you, and you say, "I forgive them," <laughs> right? I forgive them and I love them, right? That's the right answer. Okay, so it's it's forgiveness, all right, and it's gratitude, right? Those two things. If you focus on it, then it breaks that demonic oppression off. But it's the demonic oppression that's resulting in these cycles of poverty and criminality. I don't think white privilege is a thing because, for two reasons. Number one, I'm a Christian. So I don't think any kind of worldly privilege is actually valuable, right? That was my argument from yesterday, right? The biblical paradigm is that these types of privileges are, to a Christian, are worth nothing. They're garbage, right? And so when I'm, when I'm working with Christians, that's going to be the main argument that I'm going to use, right? Because we're not to value things like white privilege, even if it was a real thing, okay? Now, that being said, it's not a real thing, okay? It's not about being white or black. It's that whites have a higher correlation of having married parents, that's what it comes down to. It's two-parent privilege. Two-parent privilege is the real privilege. It's not a racial issue. It's, it's a sin issue.